Hello, Private Equity, and welcome to the second season of the pod, in which we'll be looking at PE's favorite duet, the GP and its co-investor. In this co-investment special, we'll be asking, how do startlets, first-time funds, chant the no fees, no carry chorus? Are secondaries investors in tune? And will venture co-investments be their next rising stars? Join us in our special guest, Alexandre Mott, in this episode of the Uncode Private Equity podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome. I'm Francesca Veronese, and our topic for today is co-investments. We've got an interview from Alexandre Mott, head of co-investments at Ardian, discussing the close of Ardian Co-Investment 5, and we'll be reviewing some of the latest updates of this well-established strategy. To help me with that, I have today my esteemed colleagues, Paul Tilt, head of fund research at Accurus, contributing to the pod for the first time. It's great to have you. Hi, friends. Great to be here. Thanks for the warm welcome. As well as Oscar Gein for his last contribution to the pod as Unquote's news editor before he set sail for New Horizons at Datwire, Unquote's sister publication. Welcome again, Oscar. Thanks for having me back, friend. So let's kick off with some fundraising stats um, to start with um, and have an idea of how uh, popular the strategy has become. Um, I might um, leave this to you, Paul. Uh, can you give us an overview? Sure, yeah, happy to, yeah. We've been delving into the to the Unquote database, and uh, since the start of 2016, there have been 35 final uh, closes of co-investment funds that have a, gl- a European or a global strategy, and that raised a total of 20 billion uh, euros. And this compares pretty favourably with the 5.2 billion in the four prior years, um, a pretty substantial uptick. And this was raised across 13 funds. Uh, th- that's really huge. Um but I was wondering, do you um, is there a way to have an idea of how um, how big is the market exactly? Well, unfortunately, it's pretty opaque. Consensus from the managers I've spoken to though recently put the figure around sort of ten to twenty percent of all private equity activity. Um, and from the allocator side, we've seen a trend of investors that actually didn't previously co-invest moving towards um, co-investment programs. I think a, a recent example was um, Standard Life Private Equity Trust. Um, they recently added a co-investment offering. Um, adding that it would sort of add diversification and reduce management fees to, to its investors. All right. Um, perhaps, um, Paul, could you give us an overview on the on what's happening on the fundraising side? Yeah, we believe sort of the, the trend of, of sort of increasing fundraising would have continued throughout 2019 and 2020. We've got Lexington Partners and Harbourvest, both well on their way towards two and a half billion uh, target raises, uh, each for their fifth generation co-investment funds. And we're also tracking quite a substantial number of smaller managers that are currently in the midst of fundraising. All of these raises can be found within our unquote uh, extensive database, which uh, listeners should should take a look at. Um, so yeah, it's looking looking the future's looking bright for these co-investment funds. Superb, great. We'll continue our chat, um, but beforehand, let's hear an interview I had over the phone with Ardian's Alexandra Mott uh, discussing the latest fundraise orchestrated by the Ardian co-investment team. It is my great pleasure uh, to be joined today on the phone by uh, Ardian's um, Head of Co-Investment and Managing Director, uh, Alexandre Mott. Uh, thank you, Alexandre, for coming um, on the pod. Hello, Francesca. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm happy to be with you today. We're delighted to have you today um, as um, Ardian closed its uh, fifth co-investment fund on uh, $2.5 billion last month. Um, so congratulations on the fundraising, Alexandre. When we were um, discussing the fund close a few weeks um, ago, you explained to me that several investors were new to co-investment um, as an asset class. Um, so is, is the strategy attracti- attracting um, new uh, LP categories, uh, which didn't traditionally act as investors, of co-investment funds? 
Uh, yes, you're right. We have been able to attract some uh, new uh, categories of LPs. Uh, first, I think the strategy of co-investment is now more visible than a few years ago. So more people know about co-investment and are interested into that uh, strategy. And I think the second reason is that it's a strategy which is very diversified for investors. Uh, co-investment fund will make a lot of, of different deals, uh, which is seen as, uh, therefore, in terms of risk return, uh, less risky than other strategies. So that's probably why we've been ex able to expand a lot our, our LP base for that fund. Um, great. Um, and I was wondering whether some of your LPs are actually um, at the same time doing co-investments themselves um, alongside GPs, and, but they're equally committed in, in your fund or, or not? Yes, the, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, let me try a, a comparison. Maybe it's not a perfect one. Uh, it's like when you have a tennis player, a champion, he's going to play a lot of games himself, but uh, he will also go and watch the games played by other uh, tennis players because by watching some other games, he's going maybe to learn some things, to uh, see how different people do different things or the same, the same kind of, uh, of things with, on, a, on a slightly different manner. Um, so stopping here the comparison, uh, for me, it, it means that an LP, a very sophisticated LP can be, of course, interested of having its own co-investment strategy to make its own co-investments, because that will bring him some value, some knowledge of the GP, as you were saying. And in parallel, still decide it makes sense for, for, for him to invest through co-investment funds because co-investment funds are going to provide this LP to a diversified exposure, maybe to deals that he could not have access through its own co-investment rights. He will also, by investing with us, see how we are working. Uh, we are one of the largest co-investment funds in the world. We have a large team, so our processes are quite sophisticated. So he will just see how we do, and maybe he will, uh, thanks to that, uh, take some of, uh, of uh, the learnings to his own process and improve his own process. So I would not say that the majority of our clients, but we have a few very large LP who are also very strong co-investors by themselves. Brilliant. Fantastic. So last time we talked, uh, you uh, mentioned that um, Ardian Co-Investment 5 will acquire minority stakes in businesses. So it will um, co-invest alongside a GP, which will uh, be the, um, the asset's main shareholder. Um, and I was wondering if you could give our listeners an idea of how, um, in practice, the uh, portfolio companies are managed. So uh, how much does the uh, Arden investment team collaborate uh, with, um, you know, the, the more traditional buyout funds of, of Ardian? Um, what kind of input does the, the Ardian investment um, team give in terms of management of the portfolio companies, seeing that it is a minority investor and seeing that we have a, a, a large range of companies that uh, are backed? Yeah, sure. So first, we, we think it's very important that there is only one person in the driver's seat. Uh, I think that's one of the big advantages in, in private equity in terms of governance. So in each of our co-investments, we absolutely want the GP to be the lead and to be the only lead. So we never try to interfere in the governance, and we don't like if any other co-investors would interfere in the, in the governance. So this being said, so that means that in terms of decision-making, uh, the GP is making decisions. This being said, we are happy and willing to help as co-investors, so as minority investors, uh, when we can, when need be. Um, to take a few examples, we can help in, uh, in uh, for example, during the due diligence. So 
sometimes we are invited by GP who are still making the due diligence. Uh, we have within Ardian a lot of experience in different sectors, so we, we can bring to the table Uh, for example, we looked recently at an ingredients business uh, in the U.S. And within Ardian, we have a lot of experience in ingredients uh, more in Europe. But it was very interesting to share the experience uh, between the two, the two continents. And the GP was quite uh, interested in, in that feedback. And the second example is after the investment, once we become shareholder, uh, we are very willing to help mostly for uh, contacts, I would say, contacts and network because that's what is usually the most relevant. Uh, also, to take an example, another example, within Ardian, we have a, a very successful infrastructure activity, which is uh, uh, quite active in airports globally, which have a lot of contacts in airports. And when we invested in a company which uh, supplied airports with uh, ground support equipment, uh, we made these uh, connections between our company and, um, and uh, our infrastructure team who was able to uh, provide uh, access and contacts uh, within airports globally. So... That gives you a few examples of what we like to bring as minority co-investors. Um, thank you very much, Alexandre. Um, I, would, um, I would be very interested in hearing your views on the market, on the co-investment market. So co-investments have gone a long way. Um, they're an established um, strategy for the launch caps. Uh, specifically, we've seen um, you know, deals around 10 billion uh, recently, um, I mean, in, even in Europe. So I was wondering... Considering that the, the strategy has been around for seven years, I was wondering what, what your thoughts on what are the new trends in co-investments? What are, what are you seeing recently that uh, wasn't happening a few years back? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you've clearly highlighted the, 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 the trend in, in the large cap segment. I, my, my first comment would be that because there are more and more sophisticated co-investors now, and not only in the large cap space, so not only people able to write huge checks, the first trend I see is that This, um, this co-investment uh, um, mode also went uh, or is going to the mid-cap segment. So I feel more and more mid-cap GPs feel now comfortable to target companies that would be a bit larger than their uh, traditional size because it's in industries they know very well. And they will do that because they know that within their LP base, they have people they can rely on and who will be able to, uh, to back them um, at the, when they need to make the offer. It's something we see more and more. We are asked to be committed when the GP is making the, the final bid. And that for mid-cap GP is something not new, but which is developing. Um, the second trend I see is that um, we, we see the, the appearance, the, the emergence of secondary co-investment. So what is that? It's, it's a GP has been owning a company for two, three years, and he's selling maybe 40% or 30% of the business in a strategy to de-risk a little bit his, uh, his um, performance. Usually it's when the deal has been doing very well. And he will try to or propose to sell it first to his LPs. So to co-investors. Um, so that's, that's also a trend we are seeing. Uh, and the last trend is um, there are some, I, th I think more and more, uh, either first-time funds or fundless sponsors who are people with uh, very high skills, usually a, a long-time uh, private equity experience, but who don't have enough fund or enough money to make investments, who will uh, propose and rely on co-investors at the beginning to, to seed their strategy, to build their first track records, uh, and therefore to, after a few 
successful um, deals funded with co-investors uh, aim, will aim to, to raise their own funds. I see. All right. Uh, perhaps a, a final point um, would be, what are the challenges that both um, experienced co-investors are facing at the moment and um, new um, new players that are co-investing for the first time? So Yeah, sure. So some of the challenges are, are the same than, than they've been in the, in the recent years. So it's uh, a lot about organization. So how do you make your, what everything we discussed, basically, how do you organize your sourcing so that you can be fast in making the link uh, and, and providing the access to the co-investment team with the deal. Uh, then how do you manage your uh, decision process internally? Are you able to have an investment committee that uh, understands the type of risks which are uh, related to a co-investment activity, which are not the same risks than a fund-of-fund activity? Um, another difficulty which maybe is not relevant so far today but which may happen is how do you react when you, some of your companies are facing difficulties uh, because when you are a, a public co-investor, you, you, your name is on the press, if the company is, is not performing well, uh, this may have uh, some image uh, consequence. So that's uh, something everybody faced in 2008 and 9 and uh, lots of people forgot but it might, uh, it might come. Um, and maybe that's the link to the, to the second part of, of your question and my answer. It is uh, currently, of course, it's in everybody's mind that the market is, uh, is expensive, that uh, there might be some upcoming uh, uh, difficult economic times. We don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly from where. We don't know exactly why. Uh, it's not easy to understand what are the consequences of the negative interest rates. So all that creates an environment which is quite difficult to, to assess with certainty. As you know, we are investing for five years. So uh, when we co-invest for five years, uh, we will not be in the leading seat. So it's really decisions we need to make based on our best knowledge of the industry, the market, the company, but also a lot <clears throat> on the trust that we uh, have on the, on the lead investor. So I would say that more uh, a theoretical aspect, but um, <clears throat> making co-investment decisions currently uh, is not easy. So that's why I think back to the beginning, uh, diversification is, is, is key because we, are, we can't be certain 100% of the time that we are making the right decisions. Uh, so the fact that we are quite diversified makes that if we make a few uh, mistakes or wrong decisions, uh, then it will be uh, averaged with uh, hopefully a, a much higher number of, uh, of good decisions and, and great company with, uh, with high-performing uh, uh, general partners. Thank you very much, uh, Alexandre, on, um, for, for talking about the challenges there that, that co-investments are seeing. Um, and that's all the time we have, I'm afraid. Um, but many thanks for joining us um, today. It was a pleasure to have you on the pod. And I look forward to the next time. Thank you, Alexandre. Many thanks, Francesca. It was great to hear from a well-established player. Certainly, co-investment strategies from pan-European investors have very much consolidated. According to a report published in September by Reed Partners, 93% of limited partners surveyed expect to increase or maintain allocation to co-investments. So what we were saying before, Paul, um, the strategy is looking really positive. That said, actually, uh, what we hear as well is everybody wants a co-investment, but actually the ones that can execute to a manager's timeline is actually quite a minority. So that's worth bearing in mind as well. Great. Um, but it's time to talk about uh, newly launched GPs, uh, which are looking into the strategy for the first time. 
A source working as an advisor told me that his firm alone has seen around 75 first-time GPs, first-time GPs across Europe that wish to co-invest uh, with LPs even before having raised the fund. Um, that way they can complete two, three acquisitions, um, have a track record to talk about and then uh, fundraise. Um, those co-investing LPs uh, might then actually uh, back the GP's maiden fund, right? Um, Oscar, do you think this is an advantageous strategy for debit funds? Yeah, so I guess the kind of deal-by-deal model is fairly well established for new managers. Maybe we're seeing a little bit more of it now because the fundraising environment is so difficult for lower mid-market funds and kind of less well-established managers. Uh, We've spoken a lot about kind of the bifurcation of the fundraising market on this podcast. Um, I think it's, it's definitely still in evidence at the moment. The big players raise very quickly. Um, and if you're a first-time manager going out uh, without any track record, um, even if you know p- there are people joining the firm from well-established names, you want to demonstrate some track record as a team. Um, so an example of this is Ventiga Capital Partners. It's formed by ex-Palaman and Talbrook executives. They're looking to raise a 275 million euro uh, fund. But the, what they've done in the meantime is teamed up with a single investor, LGT, Uh, to complete some co-investment so they have a little bit of a portfolio, something that they can demonstrate and take out. Brilliant. Thank you for uh, mentioning those examples. Uh, Really interesting. Um, Another big topic um, in uh, co-investments is secondaries. Um, So the market is booming. Um, The secondaries market is booming. We've seen, um, I think, in Triago's latest quarterly report, um, it was said that uh, a new high of $90 billion will be raised in 2019. Um, And... Um, co-investment funds have a series of restrictions. Uh, for example, they need to co-invest with certain LPs, um, those invested in the fund um, rather than any LP, um, and they sometimes cannot uh, back first-time funds, um, which, as we were saying before, is a, is a very popular um, strategy. Secondary funds are therefore a lot more flexible than co-investment funds, um, and they can allocate capital. Uh, usually, it's, it's usually a minority part of their vehicle, if I understood correctly, in more creative ways including co-investment. What does this um, strategy tell us about co-investment? Does it mean that that the market has reached a new level of sophistication? Um, Oscar, what do you think about this? Um, I'm not sure about that. I think more the sign that the market's reached a level of sophistication is probably the fact that the co-investment funds exist. Um, Secondary funds doing co-investments actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, They can be very quick. They've already raised their funds, so they don't have the kind of approval procedures that some larger institutions might have. Also, typically, they have quite close relationships with the GPs. They'll know their portfolios very well. Um, and, you know, from their experience looking at single assets, obviously, they'll always do quite extensive portfolio work when they're looking to buy into a secondary transaction anyway. And you'll typically find that the most successful co-investment managers, the larger ones, they have a good track record of being sort of fund of fund managers and, and secondary strategies as well. So I think it's just another, you know, another tool in the, in the, the toolkit, as it were. Brilliant. So perhaps it means that um, actually the secondaries market is becoming more and more sophisticated. (laughs) um, Let's conclude uh, on a note uh, looking at the future. Um, I've heard that um, co-investments in in the venture space are are also happening. Oscar, what do you think uh, co-investment will be big in venture as well? Yeah, I mean, that, that probably is a sign of sort of the sophistication of uh, the venture market and new LPs coming into that space. Uh, obviously, in general, venture capital firms are very used to co-investing. You see any sort of big funding round, 
you'll see five or six names on there. Usually it's they're, com- they're used to co-investing with their competitors, right? Um, so I guess the question that maybe portfolio companies are asking is kind of what sort of value their LPs bring that they're not getting from another venture capital firm. Yes, it seems that um, in a way it's very advantageous for um, the the LPs themselves. I mean, at least this is what the... Yeah, and it probably makes a bit more sense than uh, kind of the corporate venture route in some ways. Uh, Obviously, you know, big insurance companies, big healthcare foundations have in the past sometimes set up kind of separately managed vehicles like corporate venture. it's maybe a bit less labor intensive for them to back a venture capital fund and look to co-invest inside it on a selective basis when it's in their area of expertise. I think the word selective is key here. Um, If I understood correctly, you would have um, LPs willing that are willing to back up a certain number of, uh, of startups that have done particularly well. So it it would be a late venture um, co-investment funds. Um, and yes, they will be taking part in, in those, um, you know, late uh, rounds. Um, so in a way, they would be investing in these prime startups that they've known for so many, so many for, for longer, um, having backed them before. Um, so in a way, they have also a very good understanding of the startups because they've been following them for, for some time. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, in a way, if you can back a successful venture investment at a later stage, Uh, depending on the terms that you come in at, uh, then it's a very good value proposition for LPs, I guess. Well, and on that note on venture, um, I'm afraid that um, that is all we've got time for this week. Please do subscribe to the Unquote Private Equity podcast on iTunes or Spotify, or um, you can continue listening through our website at unquote.com. A very big thank you to our panelists today, Paul and Oscar, to our special guests, Alex and to you, listener. We'll speak to you soon. Mm -hmm.